Hello, uh, welcome to In Conversation with The Lancet Neurology. I'm Rachel Hellier and it's June 2021. In this episode, I'll be talking to Professor Sir Doug Turnbull, Professor of Neurology at Newcastle University. He's a senior author on a review in this month's issue of The Lancet Neurology on the subject of mitochondrial disease in adults. Hi, Doug, and thank you for joining me this morning. Good morning. So first, could you tell us briefly why mitochondrial diseases can be such a a tricky presentation for neurologists and what the key features clinicians should be aware of? Well, the, the major problem with trying to diagnose mitochondrial disease is that relatively few patients present with the classic clinical syndromes that we learn about in textbooks, um, that many of the patients actually present with one or two features that would be compatible with the classic syndromes and presenting earlier with maybe a single symptom or maybe two or three symptoms. So, so it's not so straightforward to pick up patients. And and I think it's really important that we consider mitochondrial disease as part of the differential diagnosis. For example, you know, mitochondrial disease can present in a variety of different ways. It can present, for example, with ataxia or epilepsy, fatigue, things where we see in general neurological practice. And it's only by maybe linking that to something like a family history, where there's a, perhaps a maternal family history of similar symptoms, or a situation where you perhaps have a combination of symptoms. You may have ataxia and diabetes and deafness, which may well suggest you know, that you've got a problem with a genetic defect, a common genetic defect in mitochondrial disease, the 3243. HG mitochondrial DNA mutation. So it's really that fact that we're really detecting these patients earlier and they don't have the four classic syndromes that were taught about in the textbooks. So it's really important to keep mitochondrial disease as one of your differential diagnoses for many different neurological presentations. Great. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And uh, <laughs> I can see what the problem is there. And it's great to keep it in mind, definitely, for clinicians. Yeah, yeah. I think I think as well, you know, because um, we'll come into this, I'm sure, later in, in the podcast, because there are things that we can do and there are important implications for making a diagnosis of mitochondrial disease, it's become more important that we actually pick these patients up earlier. Neurology is still a very clinical specialty, and I think it's really important that we then pick up the kind of combinations that we see uh, and then do the most appropriate investigations. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and thanks for that. In your opinion, what are the most important recent developments in the area of mitochondrial disease research? Well, over the last decade, there's been major changes in the the way in which we consider mitochondrial disease. Uh, I'm going to start with things which are clinical and and the fact that we now have large cohorts of patients with mitochondrial disease mean that we're much better at understanding the mitochondrial diseases. And I think that has helped us inform what the clinical features are, for example, what the disease progression has been. And I think really importantly has also allowed us to develop care guidelines for patients. So it's been the research, the good clinical research that has gone on that has allowed us to develop up these guidelines, I I think, are 
really important for, for the optimum patient care. Undoubtedly, the developments in genetics have had a major influence in, in terms of research because now we know that over 350 different genes can cause mitochondrial disease and therefore a way of sequencing the Sanger sequencing, which, you know, was a lot slow, laborious process, has been basically transformed by the presence of next generation sequencing. And it means that we can establish a diagnosis in the vast majority of patients now and actually establishing what particular type of mitochondrial disease significantly affects say the inheritance pattern affects the likelihood of disease certain forms of disease progression the presence of certain symptoms and the you know optimum therapy for those patients so improving the diagnosis and actually getting a genetic diagnosis rather than putting it into a lumping oh this could be mitochondrial disease has been really important i think the other thing that we've become aware of is again through the clinical research has been the fact that whilst patients might present with neurological features, they can have some non-neurological features which are really important. For example, there's patients with certain forms of mitochondrial disease have a high incidence of cardiac disease and, and cardiac disease can clearly have major consequences if not picked up can lead to sudden death for example so are those things you might not have you might not have linked to mitochondrial disease in the past then? you might not yeah. have linked or might not be aware or might do inappropriate tests for example you know, an ecg would not necessarily pick up the fact that they've got patients would might have quite severe cardiac hypertrophy there may be certain patients will get certain dysrhythmias and again if they're not under regular cardiac follow-up for example because they're at high risk of these things it, it, it may be missed the other thing the other symptom that, and signs that we see in our patients are an awful lot of uh, GI dysmotility again important to pick up important to recognize because that these patients often have problems with absorption of drugs for example and ultimately in some patients will lead to pseudo obstruction and aspiration pneumonia etc so it's important to pick up that, that these non-neurological features may have life-threatening consequences and then I suppose we'll come on to a bit later will be around you know, treatment that whilst there have been improved, massive improvements in the symptomatic of treatment of patients. Mm. At the end of the day, we don't have a cure for patients and many patients will, will continue to deteriorate and, and develop more severe symptoms. But there's been some recent advances in reproductive options that are available for patients and now there is a way to prevent the transmission potentially prevent the transmission of mitochondrial dna mutations because there's a significant percentage of patients have have mutations in their mitochondrial genome for example and those are only passed down from mother to child there's now a, a, a number of reproductive options that are available certainly in the uk uh, that allow mothers to consider different potential options when they want to when they want to have children. So I think that there are advances in all aspects. Um, there's still a lot of work to do, but there's been advance in all aspects, which significantly will affect the lives of the patients that that, that we all see. 
Yeah, for sure. And you you said about sort of genetic studies and clinical studies. And in terms of genetic analysis, this is obviously has always been important for mitochondrial diseases. But um, you also mentioned in the study, in your review, that about an increase in phenotype first approach. Could you explain a bit about that? Yeah, I suppose this really comes back to the whole importance of of looking carefully at patients and doing the and organizing the right and most appropriate investigations there's a belief because the test is out there you know, sometimes people just just send off oh well we don't know what's wrong with this patient i mean that's a bit it's a bit disingenuous that because clearly neurologists are the classic um, group of individuals that that really think about the physical signs and the symptoms it's still a very clinical specialty but i think that actually just thinking about it and then looking at the collection of physical signs and then thinking of symptoms and thinking about what sort of mitochondrial disease it could be is really important um, I've mentioned before that mitochondrial disease is you know, the only genetic condition where there are two different genomes involved. There's either the nuclear genome, which of course is what all other genetic conditions are caused by mutations in the nu- nuclear genome, or mitochondrial genome. And, and the mitochondrial genome is tiny, it only encodes 13 proteins, but is absolutely essential for mitochondrial function. And about two-thirds of adult patients with mitochondrial disease have defects of the mitochondrial genome. So clearly, you have to think about, well, what is the likely, is it likely to be a nuclear defect? Is it likely to be a mitochondrial DNA defect? If it's a mitochondrial DNA defect, for example, it's important to think, well, is that defect likely to be picked up in blood or would a urinary sediment sample be a better way of picking it up or am I really sure that I've excluded mitochondrial disease? Do I need to think about a muscle biopsy? So so whilst we've moved away from a muscle biopsy being the first test that we were used to do if we thought mitochondrial disease was the likely diagnosis, and it still has a place in the diagnosis of mitochondrial disease, we very much feel that, you know, the genotype, you know, doing the genetics first before the muscle biopsy is an important thing to do because you can actually often pick up the genetic defect. So again, it's making sure that you've thought through the potential different types of mitochondrial diseases could be before then sending off the appropriate, most appropriate genetic test. And of course, we all know that there's literally 23,000 genes in the nuclear genome and there's lots of variants in there and actually establishing whether a particular variant is the cause of disease is one of the great challenges of modern genetics and whilst that's getting better we really want to try and target it to the most appropriate genetic defect. Yes really a wide-spanning disease and so it sounds a very difficult to diagnose in some cases yeah yeah i I mean i don't want to make it sound too complicated right i I think it's really important that that, you know we don't make this is such a black box that nobody wants to actually do this i I think we give some very clear algorithms in the paper that allows a neurologist to consider what is the most appropriate way of doing this and we there's a group of authors from you know 
around the world that have, have contributed to this. The thing that we spent most time discussing was what the most appropriate form of, of investigation was in patients and how to get those algorithms right. So I think that we wanted it to be very practical and helpful to neurologists is to, oh, well, I think this patient's got it. Well, well, let's have a look at the algorithm and this will give me guidance as to the best way forward. Mm, and I suppose the um, different methods will be practical in different locations around the world as well. Yes. And I think that's one of the, that's one of the things that uh, uh, investigations will depend upon wh wh where you are and availability of specific genetic tests but also financial we work in an nhs in the uk where there is a an essential free service although you know obviously we have we have to tailor that service it may be less so it's obviously less so in other countries which again is why using the algorithms to try and evaluate what's the most appropriate test i think is important mm. Yeah, okay. Uh, so let's just move on to treatments then, I think. You discussed treatments in the review, obviously, including several experimental therapies. Which of these are you most looking forward to, most excited about? Right. So one of the things I'm clearly am excited by the, the, the view that we're, we're really thinking about new and, and uh, experimental treatments. I, I think one of the things I always try and stress is that there's a lot we can do for patients now. And I think what, what we really need to make sure is that the patients get the most appropriate treatment for their current condition. And I'm just going to bring up one aspect. So there is a, a well-described fairly common neurological presentation of stroke-like episodes in patients who have a common mitochondrial DNA mutation, which is something where actually in the past people have not recognised that this is predominantly due to a, an epileptic phenomenon and therefore patients have not had intensive anticonvulsant medication. I think it's one of the things that I want to just stress in the paper but also here is that it is important that we get the right treatment for patients now with what's currently available mm. but having said that for the majority of patients with mitochondrial disease there is no curative therapy and i think that there are now that there is a great deal of interest in trying to develop a potential treatments that will improve overall mitochondrial function. So something like that, for example, would improve mitochondrial function maybe by 10, 25% overall, could have a significant contribution to preventing some of the complications that we see in our patients. But also, it's very interesting that there is developing of specific therapies for individual genetic defects. There are now the consideration of, of certain forms of gene therapy, which is, is attracting a great deal of interest within the neurological sphere now. And I think will be something that will be something to look at, keep an eye on for over the next few years, because we can actually be, use a lot of the techniques that are being used for other neurological diseases might be beneficial for mitochondrial diseases as well. So it's these sort of things where we might have not only drugs which will 
improve overall mitochondrial function, but also drugs which will be able to treat specific diseases. And, and I think that I've talked about what's happened over the last 10 years with well, the development of cohorts, uh, the reproductive options, the best guidelines, etc. I think over the next few years, we will see new therapies coming out for patients with mitochondrial disease. Thanks. Yes. Yeah, so you kind of touched on this just now, but um, maybe uh, a quick look to the future again. What work do you think still needs to be done and what research needs to be prioritised for that? Right. I think with something like mitochondrial disease, it, it is important uh, that there is a major focus on treatment. But you know, developing up new treatments also requires a better understanding of the disease itself. I think what we really do need to do is a combination of really good basic research and the more applied research and then the very clinically based research. So, for example, there's an awful lot about mitochondrial disease we simply don't understand. Why do we see such tissue-specific differences with certain mitochondrial DNA mutations, for example? And if we understood what that tissue-specific difference was, why are those particular neurons affected might allow us to develop particular new treatment. What's the mechanism for the progression in mitochondrial disease? And maybe if we understood that better, is it a mixture of mitochondrial dysfunction and the aging process? If we understood that a bit better, maybe that would allow us to focus on new treatments. So I think it's definitely, yes, we want to be working closely with screening new drugs, but we also need to understand more about the basics of mitochondrial disease. But we also want to continue to develop the natural history studies as well. Because I think, again, having large cohorts of patients, and in particular cohorts of patients who have similar, either the same or similar genetic defects or, or similar symptoms, will allow us to better design and deliver clinical trials. I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done around this idea that we need to know more about mitochondrial disease, we need to understand the disease better to help us channel and, and, and improve the treatments of patients. And I think, you know, if you look at this and you look at what the patients want, there is a, there's a meeting of minds between the basic scientists, the clinicians and the patients about focusing the research along these sorts of lines. Yeah, so that, that basic science and understanding is really needed to inform the, the more clinical research later. As well. Yes, and I, I think that, that has worked very well in mitochondrial disease over the years, that there's been a good community of people involved from basic scientists through to clinical scientists. And I think that continued working together is a really essential part of what we're trying to achieve in mitochondrial disease. And again, involved in that kind of partnership have got to be the patients as well. So I hope that over the next five, 10 years that this will, will, will really bring you know, major advances to the field. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, sounds like there have already been lots of major advances and more to come hopefully. So yeah, um, definitely something to look forward to in the future. <laughs> yes, I, I think like many neurological diseases, it's a very exciting time to be involved in, in neurology and neurological research. There are many, many things, many hurdles to cross, but this kind of 
working together, I, I think it's just such an important part of trying to get, you know, ultimately better ways of diagnosing, better ways of treating patients with neurological disease. Mm, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for the the summary and uh, for speaking to me today, Doug. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And I hope people find our paper both interesting and informative. Yes. And uh, yeah, to the listeners, you can read the review in The Lancet Neurology online now at thelancet.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. And remember to subscribe to In Conversation With The Lancet Neurology, where you usually get your podcast from.